Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. It is great to be with you today. It's early October, the best part of the year is in front of us, and I uh, wish you all the best as you're getting outside this fall. Uh, this week, I'm incredibly excited to be talking with Katie Fernholz, who is president and CEO of Dovetail Partners in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. Katie has a forestry background. She's a forestry leader. And Dovetail Partners is a consulting firm and a thought leader around responsible land management and forests and all of that kind of stuff. And we're talking about forests and we're talking about how hunters and anglers can kind of approach it and what the intersections are between hunting and angling and conservation and forest sustainability. It's a really cool conversation. Uh, before we get into that, Mark Norquist is here with me today. How are you, Mark? I'm doing well, Todd, and uh, I couldn't agree more. It is the best time of the year. Yeah, so sounds like you've been able to get out a little bit here recently. So what have you been up to? Yeah, I, I, I just got back um, day before yesterday from a, a small game mentored hunt we did in partnership with the Minnesota Land Trust. I uh, with support from the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association. We got a, a small group of, of new hunters out with mentors. Uh, it just had a great time. We were down in the southeast uh, bluff country area of Minnesota, which if you have not been to is beautiful it's it's also the uh, the driftless zone and uh so a lot of a lot of trout streams down there and these just gorgeous bluffs and uh, we were targeting squirrels primarily so we we had a lot of fun had good weather jamie carlson came down and made a squirrel curry that everybody gobbled up on the second night which was a lot of fun so so yeah trying to get out as much as possible uh, sounds amazing. Uh, that sounds like a beautiful area. I saw some of your Instagram posts of the terrain and the pictures there. It's just phenomenal. The landscape is awesome. And then anytime you have a chance to have Jamie there making something like a squirrel curry, so <laughs> it's like, that's just so cool. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was a wonderful. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and, and you know one of the the things that was unique about this is this is a program we'd put together with the land trust to to gain access to private lands that are in a conservation easement, um, and so like these two farms we were on, the landowner gave us access to. We had you know almost eight hundred acres of of these valleys and bluffs. And, um, and it's something that, that's really nice to, to take new hunters out on these, on these beautiful lands and, and a place that we know we're not going to run into other hunters. Uh, for some people, that's really important just to, just to sort of have that comfort knowing that they're, that they're out there and, and it's, and it's going to be a, a hunt on their own. But, uh, but yeah, we, we, we had a lot of fun and, uh, and like, like you said, it's just a, a great time to get to get out in the woods. But I, you know, you're talking about Katie Fernholz. I'm, I've known of her for quite some time and she's right here in, in, in my area of the country, uh, here in the twin cities. And, um, I have some friends out in California who have a startup within the, the timber industry and, and with reclaimed and, and urban wood. And, and, uh, I know they're, they're connected with her. So I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation you're, you're going to, you're, you've had with her. 
Yeah, Katie is one of my favorite people in the forestry community. She's a thought leader. She is a tremendous communicator. She can just communicate so well. She's been around a long time and she is uh, from Minnesota. So like she shares a little bit about growing up on a farm with her family in Minnesota and how that led to her connection to the land and how that, you know, eventually um work toward her career in forestry and and that path that she took. So I'm really excited and so grateful to have her on the podcast. And, you know, like, I'm also excited to hear you talk about the partnership that you're working with. Like, so for the mentored squirrel hunt, getting those conservation easement um, properties lined up, having the partners in place, those broad partnerships, connecting the dots between the places that we hunt and like the community around hunting is so important. And that's kind of like the spirit of exactly what we're talking about in the podcast with Katie, just like connecting the dots between habitat and forests and land and what that means for hunting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's so important. And I think it's one of those conversations that people who are new to hunting maybe don't have a perspective on are those, are those in the interrelation of conservation, of forestry, of hunting, uh, to really making sure we get healthy ecosystems. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, often like when we're talking to new hunters, we're looking at barriers um, to hunting and, you know, access to places, to quality places to hunt and fish comes right up to the surface um, quite often. And so having partners like what you're talking about with the land trust, um, you know, and, and your conservation partners out there working together, finding places for people to be able to hunt in a safe and, and, you know, meaningful way that they otherwise wouldn't have access to is all such important work. Um, it's exciting. I can't wait to hear more about it. And uh, I'm glad y'all had a good weekend. Yeah. What, what, what have you been up to? Well, I've been out in the woods once I, I did start grouse hunting, um, here in Northern New York and the grouse season in, the northern zone here where I am in the Adirondacks starts uh, September 20th. And then the rest of the state um, below, say, Albany, it's called the southern tier. Um, the grouse season kicked in on October 1st. So uh, here we are in full swing. Uh, a lot of foliage still on the trees. So uh, really hard to see it. The woods are dense. And so, um, you know, just being able to get out in the woods this time of year when the weather's still nice, you know, I didn't kick up too many grouse there the last time I went, but it really didn't matter. It just, it just <laughs> felt so good to be in the woods and stretching legs and, you know, anticipating what's coming up. So yeah, did, got out, did some hunting. Uh, other than that, it's been a busy fall, lots of work going on at RGS and AWS on forest habitat work. Um, and then of course I'm working on school projects too. So life is good. I'm feeling good about fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, bu you're busy man this year. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all good stuff. So yeah. So without further ado, let's just get into this conversation with Katie and, uh, Katie Fernholtz, Dovetail Partners. Thanks again for all you do. Um, looking forward to hearing from everybody on what you think of this conversation as always. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. Hope you're all well. Uh, I've got to say, maybe six or seven years ago, back in the time when I was working for Fountains Forestry in the Northeast, I came across this really cool website called Dovetail Partners, and I subscribed to their 
blog and their email subscription. And I was glad I did because like they have this incredible um, work that they pour out um, all the time around sustainability and forests and all these great reports and all these great stakeholder engagements and everything. And I knew way back then that what they're doing is pretty cool stuff. And uh, I am thrilled to have Katie Fernhold, CEO of Dovetail Partners in Minneapolis, on the podcast today. Katie, how are you? I am great, Todd, and thrilled to be here. It's uh, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, excited to be talking about sustainability and, and forest sustainability and how people can relate to that and understand it and how we can talk about it. And I think that, you know, for this audience, forest sustainability is such an intriguing and important topic. You know, it goes back to the open spaces that they enjoy, where they camp or paddle. Um, for hunters, maybe you're a grouse hunter out there and you understand that habitat is a major issue right now, that grouse are, you know, species of greatest conservation need in state wildlife action plans, that there's this, you know, these imbalances with habitat and that sustainable forestry can be one tool to kind of get things back in balance. And so maybe, you know, however you relate to forestry or the outdoors, forest sustainability can can influence how you're experiencing nature and what's going on with the places that you love. Um, Katie, tell us a little bit about your background and just like a little bit about yourself and how you got into working in this space and what you love about it. Thank you, Todd. Yeah, that, asking about the background, that's always meant to be the easy starter question, right? But I think there's so many ways to tell our stories and, and where we come from and, and what got us to now. And, and I, I always just, it's amazing. But my background, I mean, the short version, you know, the cliff note version is grew up on a farm in Western Minnesota. And I will say, you always know someone's from a small town when they describe their origin as a region, not a name, right? So grew up on a farm outside of a town of like 2,000 people, Madison, Minnesota, Lackaparle County, West Central Minnesota, the edge of the prairie, uh, not many trees. Um, but I was fortunate to grow up in a on a farm. My parents still have a farm. It's still in the family. Um, on a farm that transitioned to being organic while I was growing up. So a very dynamic farming situation as I was growing up. And anybody who's a student of farm history also knows um, I grew up in the 80s uh, during the farm crisis. So being in the middle of sustainable ag, uh, economic issues in farming and rural America, you know, just a very, that, that was very formative. When I think of my background, the farming impact was very formative. Uh, but growing up in a place without a lot of trees, it also meant that when we would go camping, uh, and I saw these forested environments, it, it just drew me in. And so my background is farming. That's my personal origin story. My professional background is is forestry. And the my life is how these intersect, right? And um, I like you said in the beginning, forests are absolutely amazing. And that's what drew me to them. And I've worked in forestry now 23 plus years, and I continue to learn and be amazed by the opportunities that forests offer us and the relationship that we can have with them. So yeah, I hope the listeners today 
already know that. But, but the bottom line for me is I just love forests. So that opportunity to talk about forest, Todd, I'm there. Sign me up. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do it. Katie, that is an amazing background. And thank you for sharing that. And like, I am fascinated with your stories about the intersections of you growing up on a farm, like an early adopter too for organic, right? I mean, back in the 1980s, like that was all still like early adoption, very innovative. And I mean, it still is the large part today. And so it's a really cool um, that you had that experience and background with your family and with growing up. And it's entirely like, okay, I can see how this can create a passion for the land and how forests kind of dovetail into that, you know, um, that's amazing. So when you, let's talk about forests and forest sustainability, you know, forests and sustainability, the terms themselves can be a bit of an abstraction and it's how we perceive them. And there's a lot of perceptions around all of that stuff, but like, how do you, as like a baseline, when you're talking to people who aren't in the forestry space, like, how do you talk about forests and forest sustainability? Yeah, it is, sustainability is a big thing, but that that's the invitation, right, is to allow ourselves to think big and think about the things we care about in big ways. And so when I talk with people about sustainability, um, when I, what I love is when I take the time to listen to where they're coming from. Like, what does sustainability mean to the person I'm speaking with? So I try and do that. I'm not always successful at listening first, but I think... I, I have grown to recognize we all have priorities in our lives that define sustainability for us. So I think it is important to start the conversation that way. Um, if I'm, you know, pushing my own agenda, then I think the, the pathway I put on understanding sustainability is it's stepwise and it's iterative and there's layers of sustainability. And, you know, the first one is that basic idea of not using things up. Uh, knowing that we're going to have as much in the future, if not more than what we have today. And what's built into that concept of not using things up is knowing what you have. It starts with measuring and monitoring. And then if we even step back from that, it starts with relationship. It starts with saying, I care about something enough that I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to be in relationship with it. I'm going to monitor it. I'm going to measure it. I'm going to look at the trend lines and I'm going to act upon that information. So for me, sustainability has these layers and really each of those layers comes with a level of responsibility and care and stewardship. Um, and, it, and you're never done with sustainability, right? You might hit some benchmarks right now and that's just an invitation to go further and to do better because sustainability has to include environmental, economic and social elements. So you start where you can start, but you have to keep you know, reinvesting and layering on. Um, and, and I think it's very important. I will, I, I'll shoehorn in here too, Todd. I forgot to mention for some of your listeners, uh, they might know the place I grew up better as a, the home of pheasant hunting. If you don't make it all the way to South Dakota, you might stop or Goose Capital USA, Watson, Minnesota. So I want to throw that in, Todd, just because maybe when people are like, Madison, Minnesota, never heard of it. Maybe they know it for the pheasants and the geese. So just saying. I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's perfect. I love your foundation about sustainability and thinking about it in terms of, first off, it's like a listening experience with engaging people around what their perceptions and experiences and realities are around it. And then caring enough, measuring it, like knowing what we've got and making, like, I think of it in terms of like how you know, it doesn't have to be perfection, but like, how can we make better decisions for our communities, for our landscapes, for our 
you know, our world. And, um, you know, the, the cool thing about it is that, I mean, this is like an opportunity and a challenge, I suppose, is that there isn't a one size fits all silver bullet approach or definition. Um, but with that creates an opportunity to have a lot of flexibility and creativity on a local level and on an individual level and a community level around what that can mean and how that can manifest out, you know? Um, and so with forest sustainability, then, like in terms of, um, in terms of just thinking about those kind of frameworks around understanding what we've got and not using things up and making good decisions, um, how, like, what have you learned about forest sustainability that you really think is cool that people should know about? Yeah, I think the core thing for people to give themselves permission to believe in is that forests can do more than we can even imagine. And so it's hard, I think, for people to really embrace and give themselves permission to imagine the abundance, complexity, resiliency, uh, availability of the gifts of the forest. Because um, I, mean, I think we're used to thinking of scarce, scarcity and diminishment and things being degraded when it comes to environmental conversations. And there certainly is a story there. I am not in any way dismissing uh, histories of exploitation and, and negative impacts and, and how some of that continues to this day. But, but there's also at the same time this conversation about this capacity of forests to be so many different things at the same time. And that, that capacity, that awareness emerges exactly within what you're talking about when we look at things all the way from local to global, and you start to see the spaces within that spectrum. Because I would invite people even just to think about where they live, their backyard, street trees, or if you're in a rural area, you know, your nearest green space, whatever it is, just think of even, even an individual tree you know somewhere, maybe it's one you planted, but just even you think of what an individual tree offers to the world. And then you scale that up to the billions of trees and millions of acres of forest. And just to give ourselves permission to think of all of the wonderful things that are possible in forests. Because we have forests that are young, that are old, that are hardwoods, that are softwoods, that were planted, that were reforested after wildfire. We have forests that are productive for hundreds of different products. So all of these possibilities exist. And I think to engage in sustainability effectively you have to start with giving yourself permission to to engage and to be an active participant. And that it means, in some ways, it means meeting forests where they are. And forests, in my conversation with forests, yes, I talk with trees, Todd. You heard it here first. I talk with trees. And what forests have told me, we can do more. We're capable. Give us permission. Let us do what we're capable of. Come join us in what we can do. And that's, that's, the, that's the voice I hear from the forest is we're here. Hey. We're here. We're doing wonderful things. You know, let us do more. Let, let's work together to do even more. So I don't know. It, it, maybe everyone tuning out now. Oh my goodness, this lady talks to trees. I'm. Uh, you know what I think, Todd? I think everybody said she talks to trees too. Ooh, I found another one. Yes, we all talk to trees. Do it. Look, I'm talking. Do it. <laughs> I'm. I'm right there with you, Katie. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love the idea of giving ourselves a space and permission to think about, you know, how forests um, benefit our lives and contribute to 
so many aspects of our lives. Um, even if, you know, it's community trees, it's clean water, it's open space, it's air, right? Everything that we have, um, to some extent is, is, uh, affected by our forests. And, you know, the other thing I love about that is, um, one of the taglines that I really appreciate about Dovetail Partners and what your specific work is, is around embracing complexity and, and inviting a space for conversation that's um, larger than just like this dichotomous thinking of it's either this or it's this, because like when we when we open that space up, we have these multidimensional, not only do we have multidimensional conversations and solutions around what forests can do for us, but we can have more people at the table contributing things. And, and we desperately need that, right? Um, so I, I, everything that you said there is so cool. You know, another thing, I'll just add this quickly. Um, studying sustainability at Virginia Tech right now, third semester grad school, the two courses that I'm working on right now that are so relevant to this conversation are Circular Economy and this course called Infrastructure for Resilience, which is another way of thinking about it is systems for resilience, because we're not thinking in terms of just like physical infrastructure, although forests like our natural infrastructure, of course. Um, but like Forests, as you work through case studies and thinking about like what a circular economy is, is being like regenerative and restorative and like not using things up and doing things smartly. Um, forests can play so many roles in that, you know, and still provide the quality of life and provide trout water and provide habitat for birds and provide you know, recreational opportunities. And so it's just like, it's such a huge success story. And we have, I, you know, I think it's hard for people to get around because uh, like, what is a forest? Like, what do you even think of when you think of what a forest is? Like, do you think of a nat national forest that maybe you've enjoyed? Do you, do you think of your family's woodlot where maybe you remember your grandparents cutting firewood, you know? So there's just like so many entry points to all of that too. Um, and I, I think that that opens up a conversation to like the next thing that I'd like to talk to you about and get your perspective. I'd love to hear about acknowledging people's concerns and perceptions and starting points and entry points around talking about force and like how how important that is. Yes. And I mean, I think it's, you know, like I said, it's so important to acknowledge the history, how we got to now in our relationship with forests. I mean, part of that history is terrible, exploiting the forest, really not understanding the limits of it, uh, having science that wasn't up to the task, you know, really needing to revisit some of our assumptions. And that's all very true. To, I mean, I went into forestry um, in part because growing up, I saw all the same messages that told me forests were being destroyed and, 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 and that motivated me. And my reaction was to, was to go to forestry school. That was you know, there were a bunch of things that put me on the path to studying trees, uh, but but I did go into forestry school with the, you know, the, yeah, those that know me, anyone listening to the, yeah, precocious little Katie went into forestry school saying, you're messing this up. I'm going to go fix it. Who's in charge here? So anyway, there, I put on my precocious Katie voice. But seriously, I went into forestry school motivated to fix things, assuming things were bad and wrong. Um, and some of that was true. There are some things certainly that could do with fixing. But one of the big uh, eye openers for me is I really committed to learning about forests was um, how much good work is going on and how many people just like me have made caring for forests their day job. 
And so when I got to forestry school and I realized the hundreds, hundred plus years of forest science and forest stewardship and investigation and how many people shared my passion for, for forest sustainability, it was that moment where like, oh, I don't have to fix it. You guys are hard at work. I get to join this initiative. I get to be part of something that's already underway and 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 so build upon the work before me, contribute my piece and position those that come after me to continue the work. And so it really changed my lens about what's going on in forestry that foresters always have to have a long-term perspective. We always have to think, hey, the trees I plant today or the the sites I harvest today and monitor for regeneration you know, the, the, the rotation of that forest may exceed my life rotation. And, and so we have to plan for the future. And that cultural norm within the profession is really validating. And so joining that was important. But I think I have very much dedicated space to understanding the history of forests in the U.S., the Forest History Society, Todd. I don't know if you're familiar with the Forest History Society, but if people really want to see the journey to now and some of the thoughtful reflection that's going on within the profession of forestry around our history, around the things, I would totally encourage that. The Forest History Society is a brilliant archive and think tank around making sure we have learned the lessons of the past past, and that we leverage the things we know today to continue to be influencers for improvement. So, but I, like I said, concerns about the forest got me into forestry. And so when I meet people that share those concerns, it's it's a common value I share. I don't want to talk people out about ha- talk people out of their concerns. Those are valid. Those are valid questions that I hope people follow on a journey of finding answers and finding ways to engage constructively because um yeah, it I I got into this partly out of concern and it put me on a wonderful path of understanding and insight and Oh, it's it's okay. It's okay for people to be worried and concerned about forests. That's that sounds like a little bit of love to me. Worry and concern also means love and passion, and that's what we need. We need people to care, care, and care deeply. Hey, listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland Bird Hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash upland birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now, back to the podcast. I love, you know, a couple of things. Um, we'll get to this. Like, I love the the last time you and I spoke, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. Like, for people to care about forests, whether they have a different perspective about forests or not, it's a great thing to have people caring about forests. That's the table that we can sit at, right? That's the great starting point. It's, it's a lot better to have people that care genuinely and have concerns and have that 
connection, right? Because that's a starting point. That's where we can make progress. Um, so it's a strength, like in your words, I remember you saying that. So I'm attributing that to you. And it, it really spoke to me when you said that. Um, the other thing, Katie, that I really appreciate about what you just said is that you explained why you got into forestry. And I really appreciate that, like you come into it, like you came into it from a lens of like concern and a lens of um, passion and like commitment to the land. And I think there's a huge opportunity. I've been working in forestry just like you for 20 some odd years. And I think telling those stories, remembering why we love forestry and talking about that is a is a great part of the communication uh, piece that we sometimes forget to tell. Like we get educated and it's easy to talk about silviculture and these technical terms around regeneration and shelter woods and, and forest measurements. But like when I tell people about why I became a forester and the influences of cutting firewood on my grandparents' woodlot in the Adirondacks when I was 10 and how they took the time to teach me the tree species and how we would cut the wood by hand and what it meant to their family, like my grandparents and my dad and his four sisters and that, you know, what that meant working together on that land and taking care of it and storing it. And like, it instilled to me like a love of that and a love of wanting to understand it and appreciate it. And I think you know, telling those stories, um, it was, what's interesting. I'll let you, what do you think about this? Like I, one thing I've learned about this, this through the summer is like, we're good at forest ecology. And I think that storytelling can be a great avenue to trust ecology because we still need to, to, to consider that. And, and in some ways we're very good with the public with trust in other ways we still have to, we can't assume that our technical knowledge is bridging the gap with, um, with concerns if we're not showing, um, empathy. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, we just we, we need people to be engaged and not to push people away. And so there needs to be space within the practice of forestry to have conversations and answer questions and engage people in building that trust. Because it, it, and, and that means making sure that within the forestry space, we have those skills. I'll tell you one of the things it's it's just I, that's, that I think just limits us in forestry. There just aren't enough of us in forestry, right? You know, I mean, when I think about the impact we could be having, the conversations, the engagement, the tables we could be sitting at, um, there just aren't enough of us. And so part of my, my hope is that we continue to find ways to recruit and invite people to participate and participate in different ways. Not everybody has to be a quote unquote forester. There's a whole bunch of roles within this space that are related to supporting trees and supporting the, the, the centering of trees and forests within our society. Um, but that's, it, it, so I think it's so important. We meet people where they are. And one of the things you said, Todd, I mean, in terms of your journey, I mean, I think storytelling, even to ourselves, reminding ourselves of where our passion lies and then sharing those stories with others. It's so important because Ever, all of us, I mean, all of us in the world, and then certainly all of us that work in these environmental professions, we're doing some really tough work. And to, to allow ourselves to listen to where our passion is and to connect with others in that way is really energizing for continuing, continuing to do the work that we need to do. And one of the things in your story, you know, if your family teaching you the, the species and knowing the names of the trees, 
that was so important to me growing up. Walking around the farm, I knew the name of everything, even some somewhat derogatory names for some of the weeds, right? But everything <laughs> on the farm, you know, it, everything had a name. It was, they were familiar, whether I liked them or not. You know, thistles, let's just not even talk about thistles and all the names I had for those. But I wanted that same relationship with trees. I, one of the things, like a measure of success, and I don't think my 17-year-old self used that term, but I'm saying one of the things I wanted to come out of learning about forests and going to forestry school was to be able to walk into a forest and look around like you're seeing a group of friends that all have names. You know what I mean? That you're, you're walking into a party of familiar faces and you can say, hey, Red Maple, how you doing? Got too many of you here. Wish you'd make a little room for the White Oaks. You know, like, hey, Red Maple, can you kind of simmer down? Sorry, that's like insider talk for successional forestry stuff there. But that's what I love is walking into the forest and being able to know the names of what I'm looking at, thinking of the how they change. Hey, looks like you've gotten a little fat around the middle. Looking good, looking good. You know, but, but then also being able to look at that forest and um, see, be able to read the forest, right? Where you can look at, oh, that tree fell down and these young trees are coming into the space or, oh, there's some seedlings there because last year, what? But that that is so rewarding for me. So even in forestry, when there's days where it's like, oh, I can't solve the world's problems. And oh, my goodness, if I see one more headline about climate change, I'm going to lose my mind. I, I can I can revisit the forest, whether it's literally like going finding a space or in my mind, going to the forest I love and thinking about the trees that have been present in my life and the spaces that feel so welcoming because of that relationship that I'm building with them, that I've, that I've invested in. So, you know, I think I, I share that just because I, I hope other people like, yeah, I feel the same way. Like there are spaces I go to and it's totally like walking into my best friend's kitchen, you know, and have that relationship with a forest. Like think of those places that when you sit down, you just feel like a big hug. That's, that's that invitation of the forest. It's there waiting for us. And, you know, I, that's, it keeps me going, you know, keeps me motivated to have that. I love that so much, Katie, like, and, and I can relate to that on a personal level so much and thinking about the forest and, you know, there's two things. One is I still think of some of the species names of like how my grandparents would call them like locally or vernacular, like they would call red maple, soft maple. They would call hornbeam hardhack. They would call aspen popple. You know, they would call sugar maple hard maple. Um, and and like I, th that stuff still sticks with me. You know, and and I. That, what's amazing is like I think about what you said about your personal relationship with that land or the trees, and I can remember to this day um, that woodlot's still in my family, um, and it's been in our family since 1959, I think. But I can still remember specific trees. I can still remember sitting under this big white pine that was probably 35 inches in diameter in the fall with my grandfather, all bundled up, nose running, wind blowing, you know, his horn rim glasses and red and black plaid wool coat and pointing out trees and waiting for deer. And there was a big basswood down by the gate where the boundary line was. And that fell over a couple of years ago. And there's a little bit of sadness when, when those big trees fall over, <laughs> you know, because that land is just like a part of me. It is like a part of our family. And, and I think that's important, like just acknowledge, um, because professionally I don't talk about that so much, but that's how 
a lot of people who aren't in our professional space think about. That's how they relate to those places that they love because that stuff impacts them on on a deep level in their heart and in their experiences and how they relate not only to the woods but to themselves and to their life. So like having some some room and space um, for that concern and empathy is I think is really important. Um, the other thing I'd like to just love to hear your your perspective and insight. Um, like there are so many shared commonalities and interests, but like when we get pigeonholed into positions, it's really tough. And I think there's also a situation where it's not always easy to understand from my experience to connect the dots. Like maybe sometimes hunters, maybe hunters get it, uh, who are listening to this podcast because they get kind of how dynamic the fall woods are, like how, how October woods are completely different than December woods. The leaves are gone. It's windy. It's cold, but it's also hard to kind of connect the dots between what's going on in my hunting spot and w- the, the larger kind of longer term changes that you were talking about. Like we have to have this faith in this long-term kind of dynamic and like there's succession and all these, you know, how forests are so ever changing all the time. How do, how is it, how is it that people can connect the dots or how, how should we think about trying to help people connect the dots? Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's really important because and and for me, you know, I, I mean, I've been on the same journey of trying to understand the complexity within these systems and the scale and connecting the, the dots myself. And so I'll say for me, what has helped me connect the dots between what I see more uh, apparent in my life versus what kind of happens outside my immediate view uh, is not everyone's going to be able to relate to this, but uh, being a a homeowner. So uh, uh, my husband and I, we've lived in our house about 21 years. And I just think about our little lot and, you know, we've planted a bunch of trees, but we've taken down a bunch of trees and some trees have died. Some things we planted have died. Some things the deer have eaten. Some things the rabbit have eaten. Some things have grown out of control. I got wild plums. Like if we didn't mow the lawn, I would have a wild plum backyard because they're sprouting everywhere. Things are growing in the gutters, whatever. So, so my point is the things we see right in our own backyard, those, that same level of dynamic change is happening everywhere, right? So I think if people just think about, hey, this place I've lived in, even if you've only been in a place for a few months, like you said, you see the seasons or a few years, just just think about what happens in your yard when you don't mow for a couple of weeks, right? Now think about parts of the forest where nobody's mowed or done anything for 30 years. Wow. <laughs> so, so you see what I'm saying? I think that's, that, that's what I would invite people to understand is the level of change you see in your own space that same level of change is, is happening all over the place. So yeah, I, I, like I said, I've thought about that many times. Like, wow, if I left my backyard for like a whole summer, jungle, and this is in Minnesota, right? This is in Minnesota where we have like three weeks where things grow. Man, like people in Georgia, don't even turn your back on it. Don't even, yeah, you know what I'm saying. So that's, that's for, for people to just say, uh-huh, that level of change I've seen, like, oh, I got to mow every two weeks. Yep, that that level of growth, that level of change is happening. Does that make sense, Todd? Is, I mean, you know, that's that kind of was my eye opener. Like even in my little backyard, stuff is happening. <laughs> so. I think it's a brilliant analogy, Katie. I love it because like it's like starting out in a place that you know 
that you live, that you can experience. Everybody, I think, gets, whether you own a home or not, what happens when you don't mow the lawn. And, uh, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Things are always changing. And, you know, I'll give you a quick example. My neighbor, uh, uh, I live in a like a dead end road. There's only three of us on the road. And um, I have a neighbor directly next to us and a neighbor out front. And the neighbor directly next to us cut like a whole bunch of pine trees last year to open up a view of like a field. And at first I was like, wow, I can't believe they just leveled their, their, all their trees around their house. Like, it just like, it shocked me because it's like right by their house. Uh, and, and then this, this summer, the, the, you would not believe how many flowers and berries and aspen whips and turkeys and deer. And like, I'm like, how, you know, I'm a forester and I'm still amazed at how quickly that transitioned and how much life there is around that. And uh, it's an amazing kind of uh, transition, but it's dynamic. And and like, we're seeing all this wildlife right in their yard. It's really cool. Um, it it kind of leads to this whole, I think for people, they struggle with the paradox of like, is it okay to cut trees? Like so many messages we get like right now, there's so much messaging coming out of, about climate change, which is so serious, um, and forest role in it. And it's easy to kind of just like compartmentalize and think, okay, the solution is just have more trees, not touch them. Um, but obviously, it's more complex than that. And so, like, I think this kind of is a good segue of like how you were explaining you look at things, but like, how do you talk about that paradox um, and, and what happens? Like, what are the implications or consequences around cutting or not cutting trees? And I think the important thing to understand up front is we can do it all. There are forests that shouldn't be harvested. They're stable communities. The For a whole bunch of reasons, there are forests across the landscape where active management is not essential to that forest being able to sustain itself and regenerate and be healthy. That, that situation exists. Um, but... There are many, many other parts of the landscape, especially here in North America, where active management is so relevant because that is how those forests have developed and survived for thousands of years. Um, so, so again, across the spectrum, we have all of these things. We have forests where people should only be a visitor and have just a light touch and not try and influence the, the, the path that forest is on. But that is, I would say that is, that is not a dominant condition in our landscape because we have to acknowledge that North America has, has, a, has a deep history of engagement with the forest, both through natural disturbance, what nature does. We see it all the time. Windstorms and ice storms and hurricanes and fires caused by lightning. Nature has been actively disturbing and causing reactions in these forests for thousands of years. Nature has been doing that for thousands of years. Our tree species, our forest habitats are adapted to that. They, there are, we have species that respond to fire, that respond to windstorms. It triggers renewal and regeneration. And it's part of their cycle. And we see the response, like what you're talking about with your neighbor, where when something changes, when there's a, what we call in ecology disturbance, when you know, when there's a disruption in that system, nature's response, you know, there's a, there's a response mechanism there. And a lot of that is very healthy and very important to creating the diversity of habitats and conditions across the landscape that we need to be climate resilient. 
if we have, if all of our forests are one thing and in one condition, they are so vulnerable. So we need that diversity across the landscape. And for thousands of years, nature has done that and does that in sometimes ways that aren't so great, but that's nature does. The other part to be acknowledged is thousands of years of history of people managing the forests of North America. My family's farm is on the ancestral lands of the Dakota, um, and about a half mile south of our farm, you can still see uh, the indications of the old reservation boundary. Um, and it's a visual reminder of those that have cared for the land. It's also a visual reminder of the history of um, exploitation and disenfranchisement and uh, genocide in this country uh, and how that does connect to our land use change and our land use practices as well. But it is so many of our forest habitats and forest species have developed in relationship with natural disturbance and in relationship with human interaction. There are some estimates, you know this as well as I do, Todd, some estimates that the fires in some areas, 80% of them historically were set by indigenous people as part of management strategy, a whole list of cultural and uh, management reasons for that. But nature was doing all kinds of things, has always done all kinds of things, but there's a rich history in North America of people, indigenous cultures and people actively engaging with that forest in, in very significant ways, harvesting products, making maple syrup, uh, burning to, to trigger regeneration of blueberries. I mean, this is just tiny examples of the whole spectrum of what we, what we have to build on as a history. And so I think that's very important. I think um, understanding that the current dominant cultures in North America aren't the first cultures to reflect upon this relationship. And we need to open our minds and, and be inclusive of that long history and what we can, we can gain in partnership and in uh, relationship with that history. So th- I just would invite people to really think about that. When we think about why is management of forests so important, in part, it's because that is the history of forestry in North America. We're just circling back to it. We've gone through the dominant culture in this country has gone through a hundred years of guilt or regret or whatever term you want to put on it. Where you know we weren't haven't been happy for at least the last fifty to a hundred years with our relationship with the forest, and so our, the reaction has been to diminish our engagement with the forest to 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 tip the scales toward a preservation mode. And that's okay. That's been okay for a healing process, a grieving process that I think we've needed to go through um, within some of our our conversations. But I think we need to now say, okay, yep, we've acknowledged, or we have at least begun to acknowledge more fully that history. Uh, Now we need to give ourselves permission to, to embrace the full complexity. There's space for preservation, but there's this huge opportunity for management, for restoration and resiliency. And there's a long history of that in North America. And by giving us permission to go into that space can also open up new partnerships and leadership and collaboration opportunities. So, and it's always a, a, a challenging conversation to have because there's a lot more nuance to what I just tried to explain. And so I don't want to be oversimplified or, or brush over the complexities within that relationship. Um, but I think that's one thing for people to really understand is the forests, it, you know, if I say it a little 
flippantly, the forests of North America are used to mixing it up, right? <laughs> they're, they're used to being disturbed and they get a little bored when they're like, oh, nothing's been going on here for a while. Come on, can't we have a little something? <laughs> so, you know, there's an right? The forest is like, oh man, haven't had anything going on here lately. Let's, you know, let's see what we can, you know, stir the pot or something. But it, you know, it's the energy of the forest. The energy, sometimes what I feel when I go into a forest where there hasn't been a disturbance for a long time, I feel a tension in that forest. I don't know. I'm hoping some other foresters and maybe Todd, you, but you know, when you go into a forest that is kind of overdue for a disturbance, um, there's that tension in the forest. There's like this bottled up energy. Um, you certainly, I, I sense that when I go into forests where there's heavy, heavy fuel loading, you know, and of course, I, I fully recognize part of that's my anxiety when I go to an, into a forest with, with a bunch of dead wood in the understory. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, someone, please, nobody matches, put them in the car. You know, let's walk carefully through this. Forest. So but I feel that in forests where they're ready for renewal. They're ready for uh, the disruption that will trigger the release of that energy. So I think tuning into that, tuning into what nature is asking us. To, to do and to fulfill our part of the bargain. We're supposed to be part of caring for this landscape. And in too many landscapes, we're, we're absent. There are landscapes where that role is much smaller, but there are so many landscapes where we aren't doing our part. We need to get out there and listen to the forest and care for it in ways that it's it's asking us to care for it. That is all so well said, Katie, on so many levels. Like I love the theme of forest being very dynamic and, you know, changing and, and because they are um, ecologically, I, you know, the shared context that you offered, I think is so important to help people like as a baseline kind of understand how forests um, have been, you know, how they've developed over time in North America, how people have actively participated in that. You know, my, my colleague, Nick B. Miller at Rough Grouse Society, calls what we're in right now like an ecological departure, so to speak, in that we're out of balance. Because if you look at that shared context, what's happening is like you were talking about just like having like homogeneity. And like um, uh, another colleague of mine, Ben Larson, calls it a sea of sameness. But like when you think about what happens with that, like the very work that we're doing at Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society with trying to bring um, have, like a landscape level approach of restorative balance to just different forests and different ages and just spice of life, right? Having a little bit of everything. That's really beneficial to grouse. Um, it's beneficial to a whole lot of other wildlife species. And then that's all a cascading effect to the people. Um, and, and you're so right about people being able to, like forests can provide all this stuff. It, it's it, like we have 760 million acres of forests out there. And so working, um, bringing people to the table, thinking about doing the right things for the right places with the right approaches instead of like having this monolithic either or approach i think it's important the other thing i think it is important to acknowledge like you know around carbon and climate and sequestration and everything i i get the fact that that is so important and forests are going to play a major role um my thought is that you know in order for forests to be able to do that it's easy to look at that and just say okay we just need more trees but we need healthy forests to be able to provide those ecosystem benefits. And so healthy, healthy forests that are resilient, right? Healthy forests that, um, that have enough capacity 
to be able to sustain themselves long term, to be able to provide the carbon benefits along with all the other stuff that they do. I think when we, you know, um, if, if we look at one particular benefit there from ecosystem services with forests, we always have to kind of keep in mind what other things are also going on. Um so I, yeah, it's totally. I, I mean, we need the forest to help us solve climate change, and we need the forest products. The forest products. Benefits. I mean, it's um, you know, one of the things if you look at, I mean, one of the things I've been tell, thinking about, reflecting on with, with climate change is um, forests are already doing a lot to address climate change. Right, they're already part of the solution. They are huge. They're a huge part of the solution, and um. In climate change, we all know it. The vast majority of a climate change impact is related to the use of fossil fuels and high impact, you know, industrialized materials that are heavily processed. I mean, you can put a whole bunch of buckets around that. And bottom line, forests, abundant, healthy, vibrant, expanding forests are a huge part of the climate change uh, response. And then using forest products that store carbon. And that can be substituted for other products. I mean, come on, plastics, man. Do we, can we, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it that, goes. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, we, and I understand controversy around energy, you know, but bottom line, if we have a chance to shut down coal power plants, where, you know, I, I know this gets all, you know, people don't like to hear it, but. I want forests and forest products to be central in our lives and in our economy. And I'll tell you, one of the headlines, I got it again today. And I, I, I just, for people to think about it, I got another headline today where it's some alternative material that can be used to create a product that kind of performs like wood. And the headline says, eliminates the necessity of trees. That's the, whenever I see those headlines, the most depressing thing I've ever heard. Because if we don't need trees, guess what happens, people? I'm sorry, but guess what happens? In a country where in some states, 80% of our forests are privately owned, across the whole country, it's in the ballpark of 60% of forests in the U.S. are privately owned. If we don't have markets, if we reduce the relevancy of trees in our economy, wow, wow. And those landowners will look around and say, hmm, what else could I? Because I'll tell you one of the things is, Almost every acre that can grow trees can grow something else. If an acre has enough moisture and soils that are sufficient for trees, it can grow something else. It can probably support houses. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like trees grow. I mean, you Yes, you get into steep slopes. And yes, there's things like that. But there's some forests that are, you know, they're probably always going to be forests because of accessibility issues or marginal, whatever issues. But by and large, if it can grow trees, it can be converted into something else. And markets, and I will advocate for markets for everything. Sometimes people will say, well, we should only be using trees for highest and best use. And I just don't have, I have a problem with that word only. Because we need trees to touch our lives throughout our lives. And I'm going to go there. This is going to be in the category of too much information. But if somebody doesn't think toilet paper is one of the most vital, highest value uses, I don't want to know any more about their life. Okay. <laughs> you know, all of these things we use trees for, 
I, 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 I want to live in an America where Americans, every hour on the hour, are touching something that comes from the forest. Have maple syrup on your pancakes. Take your notes on paper. Do what you got to do in the restroom. You know, walk on your hardwood floors. Hammer up a birdhouse. I want that America because I believe if we are engaged with forests throughout our lives on a daily basis, we will have created space to say, wow, I, I want these products. They're important to me. And I want the resource that produces them to be cared for in ways that are just going to ensure that vitality and that, that circular relationship, right, between the forest, our lives, the forest products, our communities. So anyway, you're, post-production, you're going to have to edit out some of those bathroom references, Todd, but <laughs> you'll figure it out. I think it's, I, I think it's so relevant It's because it's staying, Katie. It's staying. It's great stuff. And, and you know, that brings up like one really good point. I, I was listening to a talk the other day uh, by Peter Senji, who was at MIT. He was talking about his friend, this guy named Dr. David Bohm, who's this quantum physicist, right? And what he said about quantum physicists is what's hard about quantum phys- physics is that you can know it in your head, but it's hard to experience it, right? And so if we know things in our head, but we don't experience them or have them in our heart, we might not ever really truly know them. And like, that's exactly what I heard you say about trees and forests and like having a relevancy and having a relationship with what they provide, um, not only in our lives, but in, you know, in our, in our consumption, in our footprint. Um, it's circular, like you're saying. So I just want, like, would like to share that because I think that really spoke to me. And, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. Yes, it is. That is the invitation to do good work and to create the world we want to live in, which, you know, there's a lot of pieces of the world right now that are great. Uh, but I think people are capable of just this broad vision of sustainability. And that really does mean we have to connect head and heart. There are decimal points we have to understand. But there's also a love we have to unleash on the world. Um, and I think that's where so much power lies. Um, you know, and I think that's the journey that foresters and the forest profession has been on. There's been a time in our profession where we've really kind of diminished or tried to um, compartmentalize the emotional aspect of what we do. And, in, 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 you know, the way I've had it described to me over my career is we really need to focus on rational thinking and not emotional, irrational thinking. We need to be rational, rational, rational. And um, I, I just don't think you can separate those things. I think you have to find a space to um, interact across those boundaries and recognize that, yes, uh, I mean, every decision we make, every choice we make has an element of rational thinking, um, but rationale varies significantly <laughs> between people and between decisions. And emotions are part of our rationale, right? You know, I mean, yes, how something makes us feel is a completely rational measure of success. So, so there, you know, we just have to kind of just take the deep breath and, and, and allow ourselves to not kind of create these false, like you were saying, dichotomies or choices, and just allow ourselves to exist across that spectrum, across that complexity. And one thing I would say is, um, you know, we were talking before about concerns about the forest and how that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to start from a place of concern or worry 
But the invitation is to pivot away from that kind of fear to action, to, um, to being able to say, let me turn this energy of concern, fear, action, worry into an expression of um, love and engagement and asking questions and finding answers in the ways that I can be effective. So that's the, we, we shouldn't live in that space of concern or worry or uh, bottling things up or, or trying to compartmentalize things. We have to take that energy and pivot it to, uh, it, and oftentimes in my experience, it means don't do it alone. You know, if you're in that space of struggling through like, hey, what could I do? Or then just start talking about it. Like you said before, storytelling, you know, just start giving it voice seeing the community it introduces you to and, and follow that journey. But um, I think that for me was, that was part of, again, for me going to forestry school was my action to get out of the concern and fear about the loss of forests. My response was I'm going to forestry school and everybody listening do the same. Come to forestry school. We want you. Sorry. I know that's not realistic for everybody, but, but, um, but it is one of those things where when I think about my journey, that was my reaction was to get out of a place of fear and worry was to take the action of investing in the knowledge and making forestry my day job. And, but I, I would invite people just, just, you know, pivot out of that circular kind of fear or what people have different terms for it. Right. But pivot out of that action and, and join the work. We, more. We need more. Bring the passion. Let's do this together. That resonates with me so much. Like that invitation to action. Um, that's why I went back to grad school at my age. I'm in my late forties, you know, but I just felt like, um, you know, compelled to do that for a few other reasons as well. But that kind of message resonates with me so much. And like, it's a way to channel that passion and channel that concern. And it's a reason for action. It's a reason to act. The fact that um, these things that we, these huge wicked problems that we face are, you know, that they, they're not burdens that can't be addressed. Like we can actually sit down at the table and although they're wicked, we can work on them and we can come up with viable solutions that will make things better. I have to say, I opened my inbox earlier this week, um, saw a really cool report on carbon storage and credit markets and forests that you led, um, that you did that report. And um, just for the listeners out there, if you go to, I think, Dovetail Partners, and maybe there's a blog link or something like that, if you want to learn more about carbon and how forests relate to all that stuff, Katie, it was amazing work, um, as always. It was it was really good. I, I just took a quick dive into it, but succinct, like powerful, a lot of good data. Appreciate your work. Thank you, Todd. Yeah, that was a uh, yeah, I'm glad you stumbled across that report. Absolutely. Dovetaillink.org is the website and all of our reports are there, accessible, free. It's meant for people to get answers to the questions that they have and engage in conversations. So open door in terms of people that find that information and want to take it to the next steps and, and figuring out you know, what they can act upon. That's why we make our information accessible is to help people on that. Wonderful. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, anything else you want to share before we sign off? Just thank you, Todd. Keep up the great work. And uh, I would share with your listeners, those that are foragers, I finally ventured into making a chokeberry jam this last weekend. My husband and I took that on. I used to believe that if it didn't taste good, raw, you couldn't make it into something. I learned something. It's not bad. They're terrible raw. You know that, right, Todd? Chokeberries, I, oh, I, yuck, man. But yeah. you can cook them up. You can cook them up. So for the foragers out there, just telling you, I learned something this past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is great. Okay, we expect a recipe sometime, Katie, in the future. So, <laughs> hey, secret ingredient: maple syrup. That was my right. secret ingredient. I've, I've gotten that's kind of my secret ingredient for everything, Todd. I'm just telling you, it's not yeah. a secret. It's kind of the universal ingredient. <laughs> I love it. Works for me, Katie Fernholz. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. I admire your work so much, and it's great to have this conversation. Thank you, Todd. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.